Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. All right, welcome back to another episode of Roots and Ruminants. I'm Justin Frickty, sitting down with Jared Knock. Once again, we made a trip east. Northeast of Brookings, we're over in Starbuck, Minnesota, and we're sitting down at Clear Springs Cattle Company uh, with Jim Wolf. And so uh, this is absolutely beautiful place as we drove up the driveway, hills and trees, definitely different than Brookings County, South Dakota. So, uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and just tell us a little bit about your operation currently and where we're at. Yeah, I'm Jim Wolf, and I grew up south of Morse, Minnesota. Farmed with my dad, my brothers, and then 10 years ago, we had the opportunity to buy uh, this farm here in Starbuck from the Mark Fredrickson family, and it was a very great opportunity, and we took um, our family and uh, went on our own and started our own operation, Clear Springs Cattle Company. With my brothers, I raised limousine cattle, and we switched to the Simitol breed when we went on our own, and, and, you know... When you work with your brothers, I mean, it was a great opportunity. I'm never going to deny my opportunity. I, I wouldn't do anything different if I lived my life over. But when you're working in a bigger operation, you kind of have to make all the decisions with everybody, and everybody has to get in the same page. And a lot of times decisions that you make have to be penciled out or figured out. My dad always told us, don't waste too much time trying to figure everything out. Too many people get bogged down on penciling it all out. He said, uh, just, just get out and work hard. Always figure out a way to do it better. Treat people right, and it should work. And so I, I didn't realize it until we got on our own. Um, there is a difference. And when, you, when it's your own money, you can make them decisions more from your heart and your gut than from the financial paperwork. Hmm. Now, you have to make it work. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you have. it has to be financially sustainable. But yet, if you have an idea that you think is a good idea and it's the future, you can go with it without having to have a lot of support. Ah, sure. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it's, it's true. We've talked about this a lot in different uh, podcasts before, too, because... If you ran the numbers, let's say you've got a, uh, a ravine coming through a field, right? And it's only going to represent about maybe at most a 20th of an acre or a 10th of an acre, you know? And you said, okay, we need to shape that back up and we need to get that planted to grass so it doesn't do that anymore. Well, how do you pencil that, right? Because it's a 20th of an acre, right? You just, wow, if it's, you know, for $500, I'll just buy a little more land over here. You know, I can't spend a couple thousand, but it's the right thing to do. And it's a meaningful thing. And at some point, someday it's going to save you a $20,000 repair from when a hired man or your son or you, you know, puts a wheel over the edge and flips a tractor over. Right. And so it's like, you know, there's things that make sense to do, but you couldn't put that on pencil to paper and say, I can afford to spend this much to fix this really small problem. Correct. Yeah. So that, that's been a big change of moving over here. And, and that's allowed us to, experiment and try some of this uh, new things in agriculture with the cover crops the no-till and uh, and so you talked about driving up our driveway I'll just talk a little bit we are in the glacier ridge they call it Um, we're in a ridge of hills here that that runs kind of across Minnesota 
Um, there's a lot of rocks in there. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it is cow country. There's a lot of land that cannot be tilled. Um, it's a very unique part of Minnesota. Um, but And we have quite a bit of virgin prairie that we run on yet that's never been tilled, so the cattle do well on it. And actually over by our cabin barn, which is three miles east of here, them hills are all sand. It's It looks very similar to the sand hills in Nebraska. That's it's, a good cabin area. It's beach sand. Yeah. And so, I mean, if we got time for the tour, uh, but it's beach. We get a calf, the cows in the sand hills in Nebraska, and a mile down the road, we got a heavy, probably our heaviest ground of heavy black dirt with a good clay base. <laughs> if it wasn't tiled, it would probably be too wet to the farm sure. so and what we can grow our feed and haul it one mile and we're in the sand hills in nebraska so that's yeah. how uh that, that's the benefits we have in minnesota yeah i mean if you watch a weather channel you know low in the winter time we're the coldest spot in the nation right here yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we, we do have some benefits yeah, yeah. that's great that's a diverse area and, and directions are easy to the place even though it's winding roads up in the hills because you just have to drive around minnesota until you see the first cattle guard and then they just turn <laughs> in right it might take you a few days to find the cattle guard but all you have to do is go to minnesota drive around until you see a cattle guard turn in and you're right right yeah here. And, and mark frederickson said that he asked his wife on her 50th birthday what she wanted for her birthday and she said two cattle guards i'm tired of opening them gates oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so she said she said uh well don't i get to take my birthday present with me jim <laughs> i said no you better leave them and you know what go out and visit them on their ranch and spearfish south dakota and you guys through two cattle guards to get to the house <laughs> if they put in the same thing <laughs> yeah next birthday present i'll pick down already that's good so currently with you here you have some family involved right sons Yep, we have uh, my wife Twyla and Travis is my middle son and Brady, my youngest son. Travis is cow guy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to talk cow genetics, um, you talk to Travis. Brady just doing the crop side of it, and uh, he does help us with the cows because we are a cow operation. We're running about three hundred and thirty to three fifty uh, Simmental uh, registered cows having our bull sale in February. Uh, we call it the Bread for Balance sale. Marketing last year, we marketed 120 bulls and close to 50 females. Plan on doing about the same this year. Um, been sending cattle to 25 states the last couple of years, so they get spread all over. Um, yeah, it's being I've been in the genetic business my whole life. Um, I think the most exciting thing uh, right now in the genetic business is the epigenetics or the fetal programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep telling all these college students, if you want research projects, I said, you need to look into this because I think there's a lot we can learn. And uh, so I got to tell you about the ranch. So when we come up, if I don't know if you noticed along the driveway, the flowing fountain. Yeah. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a spring. Ah. We got lots of springs on our, on our farm. And Mark told me when we bought the farm, when the cows are drinking out of the springs, they won't, their mineral intake will go down. Mm-hmm. I said, have you ever tested the water? And he said, no. So I brought, before I ever, the second time I drove over here, I brought two water bottles and I took a sample out of the spring and I took a sample out of his well. And uh, the well water was high in iron. The spring water was, there's no, very low in all minerals. Mm. And I thought, this is interesting. Mm. And I haven't got, and he told me their mineral intake went down. I have not yet got a good answer to why this is, but my, my theory is just a theory. I don't. Claim to be an expert is if the good water with the the um, no minerals in it, it's allow it's 
the high iron in the well water, whatever, will tie up the availability is what's in the feed sources. And my dad was yeah. a big believer. He preached to us all the time, you know, you plant it, you harvest it, you store it, and do a good job. I mean, he was, and then make sure you're getting it to the bunk good. I mean, feed quality is huge. And so, so the good water, high-quality feed, and you tie this all into the epigenetics, I think there's a lot of pieces that we haven't figured out how to tie them all together. You know, so that makes some sense. You know, you think about a lot of, uh, from what I remember and know about mineral, kind of read about it, a lot of what we do with managing minerals is really counteracting or getting appropriate ratios. So back to your point, if, you, if you're, really it's about getting that ratio right. So if you do have something where you're over-consuming a certain mineral, you actually have to consume other minerals to get the ratio right. Not so much about the total mass, but it's about the ratio. Think about calcium and phosphorus ratio. There's a ratio that's desired. So even if you have more than enough, something else will tie it up. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, no, and... and I would expect it the opposite. I expected you to say, oh, that mineral water is just, you know, all full, full of minerals, right, mm-hmm. coming out of that well. Right. That's why they didn't have any mineral, but it's the opposite. Yep none yep. so so we've captured some of the spring water and we've we got 12 spring flowing tanks around the farm uh positioned where the springs are higher than we put a tank in a lower elevation and that water continuously flows through them tanks uh the best part is in the winter time you know they never freeze are no, you serious no energy and you know i know south dakota we used to ranch some cows out by here on they got artesian wells but that ain't very good water. <laughs> this is this is much better because you got really good water, but it's it's. I mean, the infra, back again. If you would have penciled that out, <laughs> if you'd have penciled it out to to put yeah. that in that uh, the construction and, uh, and all the tile and stuff, you're like, can I really justify this? But your your feeling inside yeah. says, you know what, this really makes sense to have a good. You know, I remember when I was in 4-H, a statement that I think Tom Hook told me that he had heard. Two things that cattle, a lot of cattle lack, are the two cheapest ingredients we have, clean water and salt. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. a lot of cattle around the country are lacking them two ingredients. So having clean water, fresh water, is huge. And I, I back, I'm going to tie it back to the epigenetics. So it, I think the epigenetics is, is really interesting because this is just another one of my theories, but I've been in the genetic business my whole life. Most, I, I'm sure you'll have some Southerners listen to this, and I don't want to hope they're not offended, but most of the good bulls that move the beef industry forward are raised in the northern part of the United States. Ooh, shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> shots are fired. <laughs> you know, and I don't, th- I don't think the northern cowboy, I'll put a plug in for the southern cowboy. I don't think the northern cowboy is any smarter than the southern cowboy. But I think it's the epigenetic side mm-hmm. of it. That if the cow could set a thermostat, she'd put it on 55. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when you look at wildlife, it is also the same. Like white-tailed deer in Texas, southern Texas, or white-tailed deer in northern Minnesota, look at the body shape difference and the mass and the size of the deer. They can grow big horns in Texas because they're feeding the minerals and stuff, but the body size is drastically different. And so when you're talking performance in livestock, it's still the same, right? Like it should be more optimal in terms of their temperature and environment to grow bigger and better and heavier muscle northern well realistically anybody south of the mason dixon line naturally would have had boss indicus cattle instead of boss taurus anyway right so we're raising them a little bit out of their other element right right? but but we exported and we still do genetics to australia yeah 
you know, and I always say, what, when are you guys going to make something that I, we can bring back? Yeah. And if you look, I mean, there's a lot of U.S. genetics going to Australia, but nothing comes back. Very, very few come back. And so I think it's our climate and our feed source, our quality feed source. And then as we get into the, get into the soil health side of it and starting measuring, actually, you know, there is a difference in the alfalfa dependent on the soil health, and there is a difference in the corn and the silage. I mean, this, this is unlimited where this mm-hmm. could go. I mean, it, there's, like I said, there is so much yet we got to learn. For for the my boys as generations, I'm I'm over sixty, so I'm I'm just kind of going along for the ride here. But we'll there's a lot of challenges. It. They're going to figure it out too. Yeah, no, you know, and we're there. We're getting to that point, and we're going to start with livestock feed, and we're seeing it with livestock feed as far as the nutritional part of it, and the you know we go back to mineral uptake and high quality feed, but converting that to the human side too is probably the most important part of that. You know, well, they I I heard at one of my soil health meetings. Um, the technology is coming where you go to the grocery store with your phone and you scan the apples and it will actually measure the different nutrient value in the apples that you got to pick from. You know, not, I'm just using apples as an example. Right. Mm-hmm. Might even be the steaks or the hamburger, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're producing. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've always known that just because it's a commodity, it's not the same. But in agriculture, we just mm-hmm. market corn as corn. And I think I think it's really close. I mean, we're starting to see it happen already. And, and with all commodities, you're going to see some price differentials by the quality. Um, so, so nutrient density. If you read, um, you know, top magazines, newspapers around the world the last couple of years, nutrient density of food has been an extremely hot topic. Uh, except no one can quantify it. No one really knows how to pay for it and everything like that. So they make assumptions based on mouth. They figure if it's organic, it's probably higher nutrient density. Generally true because the yields are really low for the most part, but not necessarily because of the way it's done. Just because it's it's lower input. But I I do think that it's so strange for us to, when we look at food. For, for people now, right? So so people food. We want the most food with the least calories. And then so we do that by having all these substitutes, that kind of stuff. And then the rest of it is just the emptiness, right? So we have 47 ingredients in a package of prepackaged food, which is what most people subsist off of. And it's uh, it's there's next to, no, next to nothing there. I wish I could show a PDF, but I... The, if uh, the average person in America, based on the last diet census in 2020, I think it was, gets more calories a day from added sugars and seed oils than they do from meat, dairy, and vegetables combined. The average person gets more calories every day from just seed oils, right? So, so vegetable oil, that kind of stuff, seed oils mm. and added sugars than they do from meat, vegetables, and dairy combined, this, which is an insane proposition. So when you talk about cattle diets, this is a conversation we were having up in Aberdeen, right? After, um, after one of our roadshow tours, the day after we were in Morris and we talked to you, Jim. So they were having a discussion about heifer development, you know, and, and just the difference of mm-hmm. what the, the low cost diet that you could get to put a heifer in a lot and develop her in a lot. And a low cost diet is invariably going to be about 80 to 85% corn and corn byproduct. Mm-hmm. Right, Jim. If you ask the local nutritionist to do a low cost diet to develop a heifer in a feed yard, that say, "Great, you can grind your corn stalks. We're gonna have some silage in there, maybe a little bit of earlage, get some syrup and some distillers." And at the end of the day, it's a 
it's a corn-based diet. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look a lot different than a Dorito. You know, to be honest with you, you know, a little <laughs> corn oil, you know, cook it in cor- cook corn and corn oil, you know, add a little bit of sweetener from, from corn to it. But that's not very healthy, probably, overall, because you, you talk about the nutrient density and the actual amount of ingestible natural, you know, vitamins and minerals in that is going to be pretty low. So the person we were talking to was talking about just how much the body type of their heifers and their cow herd changed when we went back to a forage-based diet uh, for developing heifers, which would included a, a much more diverse diet of different high-quality forages in a lot and mm-hmm. then out to cover crop immediately versus a, a fed heifer. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's always been back to my gut feeling decisions, but we used to show a lot of limousine cattle years ago, and I always felt like when I was building my my rations, and I tell my nutritionists that even today, I mean, the more different ingredients you can put into a ration, it seems like it has to be a better ration. Yeah. You know, and I never, ever thought of it, um, you know, took me many years to th- come up with this, or maybe I didn't even come up with the idea, but planting these multi-species cover crops. I mean, mm-hmm. so instead of just doing it in the feed bunk, and where we do a TMR and mix it all up, why not give them different ingredients when they're out there grazing? So, um, like I was telling you earlier, I mean, I got figuring out, and I went to a grazing workshop 25 years ago, and they start talking about planting turnips in the fall because the turnip won't freeze. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's been, I figured it out, it's been at least 22 years ago, when I because I remember my neighbor driving over when the turnips were growing. We harvested the weed. It was behind some small grain. Typically, we had been doing cover crops. We had been throwing some oats or something out there and working it in just to make us some cow feed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something we can graze on in the fall. We'd been doing that since I was in high school or more. And uh, But we got this idea to throw some turnips out there with it. And my neighbor come over and said, what in the world do you got growing out there? You know, he couldn't figure that out. And uh, so I had to look, and I know it was shortly, he was an older man, and shortly after that he passed away. So that's how I figured it out. I looked up when his funeral was. Okay. <laughs> and I figured it out. So, But, you know, back then we were doing it just to try to make a little more feed. Yeah, yeah. Because we knew that turnip, because we were taught that turnip won't freeze. Yeah. You know? And it'll yeah. keep growing. And uh, we had no idea on the soil health side of it what, mm-hmm. what we were doing. So uh, that's that's kind of where it started. And yeah. uh, and then we just kept but building you, from there. But yeah. your experience of planting straight turnips was when you put the cows in the straight turnips, what happened? Ah, they stunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got a little loose. <laughs> and they got a little, well, I always look for the opportunity. And I still do that with cover crops. If you're going to graze the cows with cover crops, if you can have some corn stalks yeah. nearby yeah. and graze them together. And, and that's why now we're interseeding the corn. So we are. We're grazing the cover crop and the corn stalk together. And the cow will crave dry matter if her diet's too wet and vice versa, you know. For sure. I mean, the cow's not dumb if we give her the right choices to make. Yep, yep. And that, that's one of the reasons we started doing more warm season grasses in those brassica blend mixes. And everybody's like, well, it's going to die. It's going to die first. It's like, it is. Yeah. So it's going to be dry. Right. Right. So now we've got a millet or potentially sorghum. So we're out there in November and you have the grass green item and then we've got the dry matter right there. Right. You know, in the same step. Mm -hmm. Um, Another way to do it. Yep. No, definitely. Very good. It's funny that you bring up the I think you can you can use the same analogy for, you know, that that diverse cover crop to feed that cow. Right. Like a TMR. But you're also doing the same thing for the soil. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the more species it has to feed off and, and get a more diverse array of 
you know, microbiology, fungi, and everything else is going to be happier too. Well, you would know more than me, but this the rumen, the bugs in the rumen, and the bugs in the soil are a lot of similar, right? Sure. Yes. Yep. Very much. I so. mean, and they work together. I mean, very well. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And that's what. So I'll I'm make sure I get this in here too. Another thing we did on our ranch here is um, well through Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau come to us and. A lot of farm bureaus in the state of Minnesota, I don't know if South Dakota does this or not, but they do a breakfast on the farm event, and they give a free breakfast, and they try to get the public out to the farm to, to give them an experience. So our local farm bureau come to me, and, well, I actually went to them. I said, hey, I'd be interested in hosting that if you ever want to do it. So we decided to do it. It was the first one we ever did here locally, and they were going to plan on 500, and I told them, I went to Tyson, and Tyson got it, donated us a nice four-ounce steak, so our menu was going to be steak and eggs. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Free steak and eggs. You better up that to six fifty. So mm-hmm. we upped it to six fifty. We had thirteen hundred people. Oh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> we <laughs> end up we ended up getting some hamburgers. I mean, the last people got ground steak. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but after that day, I told my wife, you know, there's value here. And we had a German back in 1979 working on our farm for nine months, and he told me way back then. He said that uh, there's a lot of German farms will have a guest house, and it's a good source of income. The urban people will come out and spend the weekend on the farm to experience the farm, and I never forgot that. Mm. So we have an extra house here. We bought in second place a few years after we bought this one, and the boys are still single. They didn't need it. We were renting it out by the month, and we decided, you know what? Let's turn this into a vacation rental. Yeah. And uh, it's been so – we've really enjoyed it. We generated more dollars than just running out by the month, uh-huh. and we offer a hayride tour if they want to do it. And you know what's amazed me the most is these urban people come. A lot of them come out of Minneapolis, but they come from all over. There's a lot of them that have read up on soil health, regenerative farming. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the the consumers that have no agriculture background are watching what's happening in agriculture. Yeah, yeah. they are. I mean. It, there's a, if, if they want to reject kind of like the, the modern consumerism and materialistic, like just buy, buy, buy stuff, then it, then it's really like focus on your career and your family and your food. That's about it. Right. And so they're really focused on their food. I mean, they're reading a lot. It's, it used to be rare anytime anything agriculture related made it to the wall street journal and New York times. Now it's Mm -hmm. extremely common and it's not all bad. It's actually, the mood has changed for the better, I think, in the last five five years. No, no, no. I, I think, too. It's It's been encouraging for us. I mean, but they are watching. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I, we've had vegetarians stay at our house, and they'll admit it, you know, and things like that. You know I mean, you, and, but but yet they're very open to yeah. hear what you do, and and uh, and they're not, they're not out against you. Just because they don't want to eat meat, I guess they're not. I feel like... I never had anybody, we've never had anybody that just is against us. Sure. Like a lot of times main media or, you know, or there, we know there are some small groups out there. There are people out there that want to eliminate all livestock, yeah. you know, that, but, but that's, but, that's what the story we got to tell is the livestock is the fix yeah. to a lot of things. And, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm looking in the right places or found the right sources, but I feel like the, def- the, the, sane voices in defense of meat consumption and especially regenerative, you know, ag and grazing and that kind of stuff have been, are stronger now than they were 10 years ago. I feel better about the situation that, you know, that livestock's in today than it did 10 years ago. To be I think honest. that's true. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, there's some really sound rational thinkers. I mean, uh, Vasilev Smil, who uh, got a book called the, how the world works, kind of a, a 
renowned author. I mean, has a very balanced take on it, right? I mean, he, he looks at that and says, yeah, you know, these these substitutes, if we if we go to a fake meat, right, truly fake meat, like precision fermented or cell-based culture, what we'll end up with then is the, the it might be nutrient dense for a couple nutrients, but it won't have any nuance. It's, it's not anywhere near the product that everybody thinks that they want out of regenerative ag system. They, it won't have you know, micronutrients, it won't have, you know, vitamins and minerals in the same way because every one of those would have to be manufactured almost separately coming in. You're going to get an amino acid profile from from that kind of a product, not a, a mm-hmm. food that's going to nourish all kinds of different things. And and so then we're back to this artificially constructed diet, right, Before from before. Like we have, you know, a livestock feed that's giving you synthetically produced amino acids. And I... You know, people get to that. I don't, I don't think they really want to go down that route. I don't think they really want to plug an IV into their arm and, and get their nutrients for the day. Well, and and uh, at our Cattlemen's Convention, we had a speaker, and I thought it was great. You know, consumer wants it produced naturally, wants to support the family farm, you know, and don't want any antibiotics. That's, mm-hmm. that's their preference. They have to use antibiotics in that solution to grow that fake meat. I mean, it's corporate all the way. It's as unnatural as you can get it. I mean, yep. and, and the other one we had at our state cattlemen's convention is we brought four millennials. They were all beef eaters, knew nothing about agriculture, and we set them up on a panel and just asked them questions. What did they portray of our industry? And it was, it was, it was a huge crowd. I mean, it was really, really, really interesting. And I always start out our tours, when we give tours for our vacation rentals, I always ask the question, I always start out, what percent of the operate the farms are family farms? Do you know that answer? It's pretty high. 97%. Yeah. So, right? Is it? Right. It's, yeah. it's like 95, yeah. 96, 7, yeah. somewhere. But most of them will guess 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, their, their concept or their in their mind what they think of agriculture isn't what it really is Mm -hmm. and when you tell them the right answer they're just floored you know they said no no there's a lot of operations that are like ours yeah Mm -hmm. and you said you know the consumer is wanting something without antibiotics they want it to be a family farm what was the third thing you said Uh, no antibiotics yeah no antibiotics uh, no um natural natural just produced naturally And, and that's not really any different than most farmers want their operation to be, right? right. Like we're not choosing to go and, and, and give everything antibiotics and, and not do things in sync with mother nature. We do want it. So we're striving for the same thing, but there are times where we, you know, we, we, we need the freedom to operate the way that we need to in order to make the right choices for our livestock or land too. So I think maybe that's just because we have the option doesn't mean that we're not doing it the way that they want it to be. Right. And I think because we've gotten disconnected from, you know, the, the urban people being more disconnected from the farm, they just don't understand that too. Well, when these technologies and these management techniques and products first came out, we, we had to be sold on them as well as farmers, right? That's we true. had to have a trusted retailer, a veterinarian, a feed, a feed person, whatever, come to us that we knew and trust and said, you know, it's okay to feed a beta agonist, right? This is, I've, I've looked at the data. It's all good. We, it, we, had to hear it from someone that it trusted before we started using it for the most part. I, when I was in South Dakota Ag and Rural Leadership, we were just having a discussion about how, how in the world can people think that GMOs are bad? How in the world can they think this and this and this uh, consumers? So I went do a, a lot of reading and, you know, research stuff here and there. And so I wrote down a list of, I think, six or seven things 
that I asked people about, like, would you be okay with this? Hypothetically, if this is a technology that, that we could use, would you be okay with it? And they were, so a lot of it was genetic things, like doing amniocentesis on a developing fetus to get a DNA profile, like on a, on a recip cow mm-hmm. carrying an embryo, and then running that DNA profile, and then if the calf wasn't, you know, elite enough, just terminating the pregnancy at, like, you know, nine months, or euthanizing the calf at birth because it wasn't worthwhile bringing, you know, forward as a genetic thing. Um, very well, that's a technology could be done today. Would you be okay with it? Well, it would advance, it'd be the lowest cost model, right? And it would advance genetics faster because you turn generations faster by doing that and creating cell lines and things like that. Most people are like, no, we shouldn't do that. It's like, well, okay. But you put it up, you know, it's one of those things that you can make work on paper, but it's one of those things like, we probably really shouldn't do that. You know, not everything that works on paper should be done either. And some of the things that we, we should do doesn't work on paper kind of goes both ways but it a list of those things and every one of those things either is done or could be done and every farmer in the room was like yeah no that's not that's not something we should do is like you know one was feeding uh you know turkey litter on, in feedlot diets right and that's a not uncommon thing we're really tough on people from the south today man <laughs> first Jim and now me. but that's the thing that's done down there and it's like should we do that and everybody's like, no, that's terrible. It's disgusting. You shouldn't feed the feces of one animal to another animal. It's like, well, it's a great source of non-protein nitrogen and ammonia. And it's a thing that happens. So it's uh, we're comfortable with the things that we use because we've been sold on it. But yeah. we have to be understanding. And I'm not saying that we should you know, give up on the fight things. But you have to understand why the consumer would be hesitant, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the gene editing is, is one that's it's here already. We can do it. The technology's there. I have mixed feelings myself on mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and I, I've asked this question a lot. I mean, they gene edited the plants. They made the Roundup Ready soybeans was the first one, you know, and everybody just, the, the farmers, everybody just adapted it. Jumped, never thought twice. Right. You know, now we can gene edit animals, you know, they got the pulled Holstein, they got the purge resistant pig, you know, FDA saying they can't go into the food chain yet. Um, and is there a difference? You know, is, is there, I mean, and I, I not only look at it, you know, health-wise, I mean, I'm confident you could eat the beef out of that pulled Holstein and it, or drink the milk and it ain't going to hurt you. Yeah. I mean, I'm very confident of that, but, I mean, I look at it more even on the spiritual side of it. Right. I mean, w- do we get to a point when we're trying to play God right. yeah. type of thing? And, you know, all the technology, we do IVF, we do transplant. We, all the technology I always looked at is I'm just make, mating male and female, yeah. and the Lord is in control of the gene makeup of that animal. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. using, we're using genomics uh, very heavily. We use genomics to make all our matings and, and all that, you know, but we're just using gathering data to try to learn more about the male and the female to put the right combination together. But the Lord is in control sure. of yeah. that genetic makeup, and, right. you know, because I always look at. It, I mean, you know, it's, there's some questions that I haven't even answered in my myself yet on some yeah. of these things. Yeah, it's just okay. So uh, the, I mean, the point is of all that I think is it's it's okay to be able to like relate to a consumer having questions. It's right? sure it, that I mean, is it's the okay. point of that. It exactly. is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all it's all good. And I understand the you know the d- debate, Jim. It's like yeah, at what point you know how. Um, how far do you want to take it? That's a personal decision. Mm-hmm. Everybody's yep. got to draw their own kind of line there. Right. Because there's some really crazy things you could do. Yeah. Yep. Could be done. And, you know, I think it's kind of interesting. A lot of times people say, oh, it's all right with animals, but never in the humans. But, you know, and um, it's just 
And we know if it can be done in, with the cow, it can be done with the human. Oh, for <laughs> right? sure. I mean, we just had a vacationer, and we started talking about IVF. And I mean, this she had three children, I think, and she was so excited. I can see my first pregnancy that way. And she yeah. could just relate. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was just like, she was just, I never dreamed you would do this to cows. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. My, my previous career, the the person who ran our IVF lab at the, at the company I worked with was out of the human IVF world. You know, yeah. we had a, okay. had a uh, I think a postdoc from Cambridge or Oxford, one of the two, and was running a human IVF clinic in Virginia before he came over to the cattle site. Yeah. yeah it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. The same techniques, a lot of it. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, we're, so I don't know where we... Okay, well, I, I think... I, I don't know. I've got this this question in my mind about um, you know, your involvement in the limousine breed and then switching over to the Simital breed and then making... you know, Now that you were able to make decisions just for your family's operation... What did what changed with the cattle? You know, as far as management and breeding techniques and you know, your philosophy of raising the simitols in. Well, when I was in the limousine world, um, we fed a lot of cattle too. Mm-hmm. We we run a pretty good sized feedlot. We fed a lot of cattle. We bought customers calves back and run them through the feed system. So that kept us. And my dad was much more a cattle feeder than a cattle breeder. Okay. Um, he he never really did get into the genetic side of us. He he evaluated uh, most of his evaluation of cattle was done on the rail, and uh, that probably helped us a lot. For Me sure. and my brother Jerry were more on the genetic side of it. Okay, and then uh, so so that kind of trained me in what to look for in cattle. And then I mean, back to this German we had in '79 that taught us about the vacationers. You know when the limousine first come to the country and we were trying to clean up all that loose leather underneath their neck, you know, to make them look prettier, you know what he said to us? Well, in Germany, we'd see that as two more pairs of shoes. What do you want to get rid of that for? <laughs> and probably also a better way to regulate heat control as well. So, so it just made, it, I mean, there are smart cattlemen. We, I mean, like I said, we've exported a lot to Australians. I know a lot of good Australian cattle. There are smart cattlemen all over the world. And, and you have to, Never, I just heard this quote, and I ain't going to get it exactly, but never assume because everybody's doing it, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. 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 You know, so, so I guess back to my dad taught us kind of how to evaluate cattle on the rail. So when we switched breeds to Simmental, um, I, I told, we worked with Tom Hook a lot. We, we bought some of his, I ended up buying most of his cows. We marketed together. I respected Tom that. He was one reason I switched to Simmental because I knew Tom and respected him very highly. He was from Tracy, Minnesota. And uh, I told Tom, I said, I'm going to keep ribeyes still very important to mm-hmm. me, you know. And, and so the carcass traits, the marbling. Um, so, and, but Travis, my son now that does most of the genetic selection, and, you know, we're, we're trying to breed an animal that is very functional to what the industry is wanting, mm-hmm. um, an animal that, you know, we'll stay the stability. Um, Travis is coming up, trying to come up with a slogan for our next year's sale. And I think he's coming up with uh, stay pays, um, just, you know, longevity of cattle, but yet good carcass traits, low birth, mm-hmm. you know, and it's amazing. I mean, we, our guardian, our bull we sold a few years ago, he's kind of, well, this is my highest selling limousine bull was named guardian. 
And we were on the G year now. It was you know, a bit so more than a few years ago. Yeah, yeah I know. It was, yeah, once the letters come around about every 20 years, yeah. right? Because there's about five, six letters they don't use. So about every 20 years. And uh, so we were back to the G year, and we had this good bull. And I said, hey, let's name him Guardian. Awesome. So we named him the same name. And I, my limousine Guardian brought 80,000. And and our Simmental Guardian brought 85. So How cool is that? <laughs> How cool is that? So he was a top API, all-purpose index, bull, purebred bull in the breed when we sold him. And he's still right there. Yeah. And uh, we get, oh, we've, man. you know, and so, and when his first calves hit the ground, some of them were in the 50s. 60s and i told travis i said uh i think you went a little too far in this calving knees and birth weight i said these things ain't very big don't worry dad they'll grow, they'll grow. Yeah. and they did okay. they just took off and grew i mean heading up awesome. i mean and so his growth numbers have actually went up since we sold him and and uh it's amazing what we've been able to do you know to have cattle at, i mean i think we assisted two heifers that year you know to the you know calves went great and and then still have cattle that will get out and grow and perform and right yeah yeah no that's a diverse array of uh, you know things you're selecting for with your focus on the the land still and soil right like I mean you're you run cows in the hills and they're grazing and they're taking care of themselves but they're still beautiful looking cattle that can grade well this is another units. challenge I have for the next generation I'm too old to do it. But we do, we've always measured production per cow. You know, corn, we measure production per acre. And uh, we need to get to measuring beef per acre. I mean, and they, they need to get that done. I mean, Pioneer, I, I heard this one at BIF many years ago. Pioneer seed corn has not made the ear of corn any bigger for like 50 years. No. All they've done is made that corn plant adapt to heavier population. That is how they increase you. We keep sitting there thinking we need more and more out of every cow. Maybe we don't. Maybe we just need to have more cows per acre, and, you know, and find that, you know, I'm not smart enough to yet to know what that optimum is, of the optimum cow size, uh, you know, everything, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, the smaller you make your cow, you got so many costs that are per cow basis, right. you know, your labor and stuff comes down to per cow basis. So, so it's... It's it's a big task. It's yeah. I'm not going to do it. I throw the challenges out at the ones coming behind me. But that's what they need to do. If you if you want proof of that, go uh, go Google um, pictures of the uh, ear corn contest in Iowa State Fair in 1910, 1900, right. 1920. You'll find pictures <laughs> yeah. of ears yeah. which would look every good as bitter better than anything you'd find today from yeah. 100 years ago. And so yeah, that hasn't changed. And it, and really, I. You know, if you look at, even if you go back to, like, the picture of Conoco, the steer that won the International in 1969, if you put a different fit job on that steer today, it's relatively competitive. Let <laughs> me be real honest with you. Like, that type kind of, like, perfected back then with that original Charlet Angus Cross. I mean, not a whole lot has changed. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I was just talking to a, an old neighbor of mine. He's a classmate of mine this morning, and he got... There's a farmer over by, by Hancock that's 60-inch corn, you know, doing everything we're doing. And he's like, man, I can't believe I'm, I'm watching them guys. I'm watching them guys. Yeah. You know, and I told him, I says, we're going back to what our grandparents used to do. I mean, yeah. they used rye for their weed, you know, to control weeds. And they, if you go back, yeah, some of this stuff, we're just going back to what they used to do. Right. Yeah, and like I said, I, I don't want to 
make the claim that, you know, we haven't made any progress in 50 right, or right, right. years either, right? So they raised that corn and I, just to make it clear, that corn in Iowa, they won the contest with, they were probably raising that at 10,000 population for the contest, of course, you know, even in Iowa. And they were probably doing it in Iowa, and you couldn't raise corn up here at that point because they didn't have, you know, very well, not for grain because it wasn't. My great-grandfather immigrated to Minnesota from Iowa in 1903, and he was the first one to grow corn in Stevens County, Minnesota. And okay. He grew 25 bushel, and he was really pleased. Yeah. Wow. Grandpa grew 50, and I'm old enough that when Dad had 100 bushel, he was pleased. It was a good crop. Yeah. And now we're growing 200. For four generations, I tell my vacationers on our tours this, for four generations, every generation has doubled the corn yield. Brady will grow 400 bushel. Yeah. And I always say, if the Lord blesses with the rain and the government don't regulate, it's too much. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, but, you know, and then they said, yeah, but his kids will never grow 800. I says, how do you know? You don't know. You don't know. And I says, you know, we, and it, you know, it's, Price might not change. I mean, but look at all the different things we figured out how to do with it. And we also got more people to feed in the world with less acres. And, you know. Yeah. So we've done that with the corn, though. Yeah. What have we done on the kettle side? Right. Or the grass side. The grass the side, forage for side, sure. You know. Yeah. You know, we've come a long ways um, with rotational grazing. And, and, I mean, that's been a huge change. Yeah. Well, and there's there's approved grasses, too. We don't. We don't talk about it as much but we were just talking the way here about some of the improved grass alfalfa stuff that i planted back in my place and what it's gonna you know it's gonna break six tons dry matter probably this year from a harvest standpoint and these grasses are unbelievable right i mean they're they're so much better than you know this the smooth brome right the bane of our existence we haven't really improved on that since we brought it over here from siberia in the 30s you know mm -hmm. i mean it's just that's what it is there's a, a ton of improved grasses out there i think that you know cool season forage grasses that are pretty phenomenal yeah but if we were to double the efficiency of a cow right like yeah. if she could eat half as much and continue to gain the way that she does or yeah. you know i mean if you can have feed a steer <laughs> half as much and it can gain twice as much that's what we're comparing that to in the corn industry yeah well I, we I, tell we tell our vacationers brady always brady does a lot of the tour too he's we got, I believe my numbers right. Since the seventies, we got a third less cows in the United States than we had in in the seventies, but we're producing more beef. Yeah, yeah. So we've cut our carbon yeah, footprint on the cattle side by one third without cutting production. I said, and I said, you tell me on other industries that have done that. Sure. I mean, yeah, I, we made the factory bigger too. You know, I've seen a, a study yeah. out there that says the average cull cow, you know, sold in I think Oklahoma or Kansas over a thirty year period grew by 10 pounds every year for 30 consecutive years really? by 300 pounds total. Okay. I mean, yep. you know, and, and that's, I think, tapered up a bit. We're, we're actually measuring it and focusing on that now. Right. The, the thing that, and this has nothing to do with forage, sorry, of deviate, but I've always thought this, that the, the cow-calf industry is the only livestock species that isn't, you know, I wouldn't say singularly, but like really, really focused on a number of births per year. Yeah. Right, number of live offspring. yeah, yeah. And, and I know we talk about like, well, let's move from 92 to 95% by being healthier. Like, but what about 125%? What about 140%? Mm -hmm. Like everybody else, if you were talking to the guys in Pipestone that raise sheep, lamb drop, right? Mm -hmm. Lamb drop comes up right away. That's, all the hog guys, that's all they talk about. Takes yeah. per sow per year. Yeah. You got to get to 30. Yeah. 30 is the magic number. And it used to be to 20s. Right. I mean, it used to be like 21 and now, yeah, now they're pushing 30. And right. Uh, for, for laying hands, is clutch period, right? The, the number of consecutive days that they'll lay an egg before they take a day off. So do you want twins? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying. It's I mean, we better figure out how to get on top of some of the issues that twins create us. I don't disagree with that, but multiple 
you know, lambs is more difficult to manage too. Than sure, singles. sure. Singles are easy. Yeah. You know, but even just tightening the calving window is an improvement too. Yeah. Tightening calving window. And I think it's, you know, it's managing for it when, if you've got, you know, if you're a progressive, uh, you know, sheep person, you'll have someone come in ultrasound, then you sort your triplets off versus your doubles and maybe your singles or your quads. And then you manage your triples and your quads much differently. Sure. Feed them differently, yeah. watch them differently, all that kind of stuff. My wife's cousin's a hog, big hog guy. And he was up here one time. We were calving and we were out checking the cow's calving and we come upon this stillborn calf. I'll never forget it. He looked at me in the pickup and he says, so you have to wait a whole year to try to get one more? Ah, yeah. I says, you're kind of wondering how we survive, ain't you? He says, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, it does make you stop and think. Yeah. I mean, when he's rolling out 25, 30 pigs a year out of every oh, no. sow, I think, how in the world? But I'm going to put the plug in. The way we, way we can do it is our cow can go out and harvest her feed, spread her manure, you know, our cow can graze. I want to get this one in. When I used to, when I was back with dad, I get to Thanksgiving before we fed cows, and he'd pat me on the back and say, Good job, Jim. What's Thanksgiving? We haven't fed anything. Now we're getting into January. We're grazing, and if we wouldn't calve, so we're really calving in February, so we kind of got to get them into the calving barn, you know. If we wouldn't be calving so early, I'm not so sure we could. There, there was one year we grazed a group of cows to mid-February. but um, So then, yeah. so, you know, I'm not recommending people go back to using the Mark Twinners, right? Meat Animal Research Center had a breed called Twinners that do this, but it's kind of like a, a naturally pulled Holstein, right? So you're talking about the gene edited or the transgenic version of a pulled Holstein, uh, there is naturally pulled Holsteins, but they're so behind, right, genetically that you can't afford to use them, even one generation to introduce it into your, you know, Holsteins at a dairy. Uh, there's some other tools that could go there, but then let's think about number of calves or number of, you know, it's almost not even pounds. It's really about number of calves, right, because these, you know, it's, it's really about getting more live ones. I mean, pounds are great and everything, but... Um, about getting as many 500-pound feeder calves as you can from a, a system, number of those per 1,000 pounds of mature cow or, you know, some metric there or, or per acre or, you know, something like that. I, I think that's the, the better way to look at it. Well, look what the dairy industry has done, Jared. Um, you know, we didn't think they could compete with us raising calves in a hutch or, yeah, know. you know, these calf, these calf farms. And when they start breeding all these dairy cows to beef, I mean, that's a big impact in our industry. So maybe you could have the beef cow have twins, just pull one off right away and raise that one in the hutch and be like, the you know, I mean, yeah, think outside the yeah. box. There might be. Why is that any different? It's not. It's, it shouldn't it's be. Not, right. And you'd, you'd try and graft them on for a little bit and then you'd turn them back out, right? You'd calve intensively and, and you'd do, you probably would evolve some level of, of, a, of a commodity, you know, produced IVF embryo, double or triple implanted into a mature cow that you shoot for, you know, twins to triplets potentially and and you, you calve them in intensively you know watch them like you would kind of a heifer and then you pull off the number that you need to if she can raise one if she can raise two whatever it is but it sounds nuts but it's it's the only industry that doesn't focus almost singularly on that metric which is you know number of <laughs> offspring per year but like i said you got some hurdles across yeah because yeah, yeah, usually yeah, when sure. that cow has twins she's a hard, lot harder to breed back than yep. i mean not every cow you're, you're gonna have to find the right genetics because some of them can do it very good I, we've had cows you know you typically we'll pull one off and graft it over but we've had cows raised too and you, you can talk to some people they'll raise them both and breed right back and mm-hmm it's a bit off topic. I didn't it is. Bring it all <laughs> it's in. It's all about efficiency of the model, right? Yeah. It's an idea that I've seen no one take up. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Fantastic. 
I, uh, so, so Jim, we were talking about, you know, your, your G's back to guardian and everything like that kind of reminded of, um, so a couple, two or three years, I know I came out to Denver with your crew and stayed out with you guys. And I, you talked about the letter years and I was thinking of like trying to figure out what year that was. And I, I figured it out by figuring out the, the, the letter that the bull started with back when ransom and it was okay. the R year, okay. right? So that was the first year and then it was the S year sirloin yeah. and yeah. all them. So okay. well, sure. now that I could remember the names of the bulls, I could figure out by the letter system what yep. years I was out in Denver. Yep. Oh, <laughs> five, oh, six. Yep. So. Yeah. Fantastic. So the other thing I think we have to look at when we look at efficiency is I, I remember Donnie Schiefelbein, I heard him speak one time and he said, if you were the CEO of the beef industry, what would we do? And, you know, we were the top end of the industry was focusing, you know, genomics and ultrasound and all this stuff. But he said, we have so many, produ- I, he had the numbers there and I don't remember, but we have this many percent of the producers that never vaccinate. We have this percent that don't castrate. You know, we have more room to make up on the bottom end than, you know, we have a vast yeah. difference of producers, management scales, and you actually got a lot. What they say, the lowest hanging fruit is the easiest to pick, you know, on the bottom end. I but think so, too. And I, th- I think it's true as well for, like, forage production, too. Right. I, mean, I think it's it's been vastly under-researched and, and under-focused compared to grain yields for decades. Oh, that's definitely true. You know, think about the, the scientific approach that we would take towards um, – Producing corn, soil tests, tissue samples, satellite imagery telling us how to manage it, prescription fertilizer, fungicides, all this kind of stuff. And then think of how we put up hay. Nah. Right. <laughs> Plant it for ten every ten years. Yeah. We go out there sometimes once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times and cut it. That's it. You know, that's it for a lot of people. And there's a a reason why the you know, the the output of the corn is better and turns into more financial opportunity. It's because of the way it's managed. Yep. And then think about the way we manage pastures. Think about the last time someone took a soil. You, you said you, you take some soil tests on pastures, Jim, at all? Uh, we, we have really cut down on fertilization. I mean, yeah. when we first moved here, I fertilized some, but we, we didn't fertilize nothing this year yeah. with, the, with the price. Yeah. But, I mean, we've doing a more and more intensive grazing. Right. I mean, there's 190 acres of hills east of the house here. When I moved here, um, it was just split with one hot wire, and he rotated from half to half, and the cows all had to walk up to the house to get water. You know, my brother does uh, drainage tile, so he's got a tile plow. We we plowed in uh, water lines. We got four tanks out there. We got that split into 15 paddocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, we typically only graze every paddock no more than twice a year. Um, so, I mean, rest period is huge for us. Yeah. And... Uh, so, and the other thing, you know, capturing every raindrop where it falls, there's a big hole, out, a big basin, I should say, out in the hills here. And when I come and looked at the farm, it was three foot deep of water and the cows are down in there walling around in the mud. And I said, is there water in there all the time? Pretty much. Real dry years, it'll dry up. Since we've done a very good job of intention uh, rotational grazing, we have had no, and we, three years ago, the last two been dry, but three years ago, we had a very wet year. We have had no water in that. And there's grass vegetation. It, it was a, probably a good half to three quarters of an acre spot that was drowned out and yeah. no production. And there is no water in that, yeah. even in the wetter years. Because sure. your runoff's be, not ex- right. Ex- because we're we're improving our water infiltration by giving that grass rest time. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's and in these hills, I mean, it's it's critical to capture that raindrop where it falls for sure. And that's yep. we're doing the same thing in the cropland. I mean, I mean with the 
the infiltration with the noise. I guess the rain simulator that I seen at a soil health meeting, um, that was the biggest eye opener I ever seen. And if we do a meeting next winter, maybe we need to try to get one. Because that, when you take that cover crop, no-till dirt, and compare it to the conventional till dirt, and then you give it an inch of rain and watch that happen, that was an eye opener. Yeah. And when they do it with, have you seen it with perennial grass? You know, overgrazed pasture versus oh, managed grass. No, I haven't. And it, it comes down to that too. Your runoff is so much higher on that short grass with absolutely no root development too. So you have mm-hmm. no root channels and no infiltration. So the well-managed grass always infiltrates way more too. Oh, it, 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 I mean, it only, that, that's one thing you don't even have to figure out. I yeah. mean, just, I mean, I could take you to some pastures that we got cows off in now. And I mean, there's still grass out there six inches tall if we'd mm-hmm. happen to get it. We wish you could get a two-inch rain tonight, but if that would come, I mean, you know you're going to capture, yeah. slow that down and keep yeah. it from running down that hill. Yep. And it, when it runs down the hill, you not only lose the benefit of having it soak in on top of the hill, but usually the bottom drowns out or yeah. you guys got way too much, you know? <laughs> yep. You're hurting both areas. <laughs> yep. Uh, Jim, a couple of weeks ago when we talked to you, uh, you mentioned that you kind of have a, a lofty goal going forward on how to how to interact, uh, how the beef industry, as you said, what a CEO of the beef industry, what would you do, and uh, how would you market all the things that beef beef producers can offer? And you made the comment that your goal would be to get to the point where, you know, the understanding of the value of the cow is, is so great that you don't have to pay to graze, you get paid to graze. Well... Now you got to envision yourself as being the CEO of the agriculture, yeah. not just yeah. the beef industry. What would you do? I think it's simple. The first thing you would do is you get the livestock over more of the land. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and you go back, let's go back two generations. Um, in the 70s, they tell me there was 200 and some dairies here in the, with a Starbucks address. Now they're down to three, I think. Um, every farm was a 20, 30 cow dairy. So every farm had alfalfa, small grain, corn. Every farm got manure applied to it. Every farm, every farm had that. Mm-hmm. But they've all left now. Mm-hmm. And the livestock is just concentrated on a few farms. Yeah. And the livestock, I mean, the livestock, them rumen bugs interacting with the soil bugs and stuff. And the other thing that I didn't realize till I moved to the hills is in the fall of the year when you graze, them cows will bed down on top of the hill in the evening because it's warmer. You know, take your four-wheeler and drive down the road in the evening sometime. It's 10, 15 degrees warmer as you go sure. up and down the hills. And so the cows will all bed down the top. What's the cow do? First thing she stands up in the morning, she drops a big pile. I got We got 500 acres. My nephew's and his operation farms right south of us five miles. And they it's wheat this year, so they'll have a cover crop on there, and we're planning on grazing it. And I tell him, I said, I'm bringing your organic matter from the valley and putting it on top of the hill, and you're charging me to do it. You ought to feel guilty. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you ought to feel guilty. I mean, because you're charging me to pull your organic matter from your valley and put it on the top of the hill. And, and they, you know, and so they'll come back with corn the next year, and they do some, you know, they, they got all the yield maps and stuff, and we never graze all 500 acres. We'll always leave some ungrazed, and it's looking like we're improving yield. We were bickering. We usually pay so much per cow per day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and uh, and I told him, I, we were bickering on what that price should be. And I says, well, I'll give you what you want. You give me half of your corn boost. I said, if it <laughs> makes if it makes five bushel more where I graze, I, you pay me two and a half bushel an acre back. 
Yeah. Oh, I can't do that. I said, yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cow guy. So that is my goal is to get the big grain farmer. You know, you know, and my brother, who is a big grain farmer, his son is, they don't have no livestock. He told me, I was telling all this one day, and he says, Jim, if you talk everybody into getting cows, you know how cheap your beef is going to get? <laughs> the way you make the value of the cow stuff? I says, I'm pretty confident everybody's not going to get cows. Right. <laughs> I says, because these grain farmers are too good. They, you know, they, they go south all winter. You know, n- not everybody's going to want the 365-day commitment it takes to run cows. Yeah. But we have to create a system. We can create a system that is a win-win. Right. You know, they, you know, they think, and I think the biggest challenge we have in the cattle industry being a cowboy is a number one American dream. You know that? <laughs> yeah. More people dream of being a cowboy than any other thing. So having cows is a fulfilling a dream. So there are a lot of people out there that are willing to do that and now under no profit. They don't ever intend to make money with them cows. Mm-hmm. Right. So if they're putting beef out there on the market with no profit, operating in the red, those of us that are trying to make a living on it, makes it a more of a challenge it now does. if you're selling genetics sometimes them guys are some of the best guys to sell to because they don't care sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i took a bull to south of minneapolis it was almost in the suburbs i pulled in the driveway i mean this was 20 acre farm and he had about 20 different species of animals on there i mean they had everything both husband and wife worked for the state of minnesota they had 10 cows they needed this bull I mean, you could, I mean, it was just, it was, an, and they said, we picked out a bull, we come there, and he got out of our budget, so we had to settle for our second chest. But next time we're coming, we've already decided, we're going to pick out our favorite, and we don't care what he costs us, we're just going to buy it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I hope their bull wears out pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to lower your stability EPD now. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, great. No, it's a it's a it's a very real challenge, I think, to to figure out how, like I said, how you how you continue to make the cows attractive from a profitability standpoint for someone to get into it, when there's so many folks that aren't. Very few people are farrowing out two thousand sows for fun. The chicken industry, has, poultry, and a little bit, you know, there's there's backyard yeah. birds, but sure, yeah, the hog industry, yeah. I don't, there's very very little. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, it sure is a sure is a lot of it here, uh, and it's uh, like I said. I, I think it's I think it's awesome that people are are wanting to, you know, be a part of this industry. I think it gives this industry such a robust and interesting perspective. You know, I mean, like I said, I I think it's fantastic that people want to aspire to to own cows. I mm-hmm. think it's awesome. Like, mm-hmm. like, what would you rather have them prefer to you know own yachts? That's a good point. I mean, yep, and yep. it gives such a credibility to the industry. So if you're Back to the CEO of the beef industry, you know, you're going, hey, this is this is going for us. You know, people, everybody wants to be us. Let's uh, let's capitalize on that right. and lean in, lean huh? in, yep. lean into that instead of, you know, trying to, you know, try and belittle anybody for, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you hear that, right? So talk to people like, oh, we don't want those people to be associated. No, yeah. let's bring them in. They still need hey. bulls. Yeah. Well, and well I, own cows, you know, be part of associations sure. and all of it. Like, hey, this is a big part of industry. It's not small. It's not small. Well, you know, the cattle industry, the beef, beef is the highest dollared commodity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more dollars of beef sold than corn or 
you know. I mean, yeah. when you hear the markets on the radio, they always give the grain markets before the livestock market typically. <laughs> but actually, yeah, the most dollars traded in the, is in the beef. Hmm. This is another one I remember. When I was in 4-H and I was showing or young, I was a teenager anyway, and the judge made the comment. It was, I think it was a Friday or Saturday evening show, and he just made the comment. There's a lot of things for teenagers to be doing out there in an evening like this, and there ain't too many things that are better than out here showing cattle. Right. And I judged the UFIDIC contest in South Dakota State Fair a number of years ago, and, and it was on a Saturday evening, I believe, and I, I reused that comment, and yeah. boy... I got an applaud from the parent. Yeah. You know, that was like, so. That thing right. runs late, too. That's like almost in the middle of the night. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's so. great. Uh, well, this has been fun. It's been great. I bet we could talk another hour if we really wanted yeah. to. Okay. I was wanting that, too, if yeah. we were going to start Probably over should. and make another one. <laughs> Cut it and split it and do another. But, yeah. Been well, fun. We've covered a lot. And yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Huge thanks to you and, and just your thoughts on these these topics that we've covered well. I think, uh, yeah, our, our listeners fits so well into our podcast and our listeners and just the, the views that we've had from other guests on our podcast. It probably wraps it up all into one podcast from you. So this has been fun. So appreciate the time. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank you for driving up. Yeah. See you in our place. Alrighty. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Yep. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.